Nathan and I have agreed that we're not going to swear any more on this show. Of course, we're not going to swear any less either. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 287 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Today on the show, we have an interview with a contracted army jag, Henry Karras. What do you think about uh, our interview with Henry and the whole JAG thing? Is it something that our listeners should maybe check out? I think so, yeah. If, especially if you have any interest in the JAG Corps, or, which is basically being an attorney in some branch of the military. Yeah, listen to Henry. Yeah, he's a 3L at George uh, Washington, which is uh, also Ben's alma mater. Um, he got his placement or his what did he call it assignment no commission he got his commission uh some at some point during his 3l year so he knows exactly what he's going to do after law school he had previously done an internship and an externship uh with the army jag i guess and uh he is going to go you know become one of those tom cruise like uh army lawyers and um I didn't know anything about the JAG process. So listeners, by the way, this came from listener email, um, help at thinkinglsat.com. We had people asking us about JAG. They wanted to learn more about JAG. So uh, Annalisa went out and found us a JAG to talk to. So yeah. I thought that was really cool. We have an email from a listener who wants to know whether full tuition scholarship recipients should assume that they're going to be the big fish when they go to law school. We have a random spam email from Georgetown uh, out there trying to get high GRE scorers to apply to their school. Whether or not they actually want to admit you is a different story. Um, they, but they are out there fishing for uh, applicants for the for the twenty twenty one class, which that's especially hard to really believe. But um, we've yeah. got a listener email. Um, we have an excuse of the week where uh, a student uh, failed on a game and their excuse was that they did not understand uh, cardinal directions. Oh, wait, maybe it wasn't a game. That was a it logical says, reasoning question. Yeah, uh, that had to be from a game. I, think it's I don't a think game. that was from an yeah. LR. That must be a typo. We have also a real logical reasoning question from Prep Test 65. Uh, we dove into a strengthen question. Anything you want to say about the stuff we talked about on today's show? Nope. You'll right. enjoy Hope it. you guys like it. <laughs> well, or you'll hate it, but it's free. So <laughs> <laughs> hope you enjoy. This uh, episode will air on Monday, March 8th. That means that we are one month away still from the April re uh, LSAT <laughs> registration for that closed a while back, of course. Um, Friday, June 30th is the next registration deadline. You don't need to make any big decisions between now and Friday, June 30th. That's the last day to register for the June LSAT. Um, if you're currently studying and your practice test scores are within, you know, five points of a goal score, you could probably go ahead and sign up for that June LSAT. If you're 20 points away, I see no reason to sign up now. Do you agree with that, Ben? I, I mean, maybe it gives you motivation, I suppose, but. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I'm still just kind of perplexed by their timing. I mean, 
20 days after the April LSAT? Do we know when the April LSAT scores come out? It could be right before. According to one <laughs> of our right students. After. Yeah. According to one of our students in the, our live classes, she has it in writing. She said this several times. She has it in writing, Ben, from Law School Admission Council that she will have her April LSAT score before the June registration deadline. Um, okay. What do you think that's worth? the fact that she has that in writing. She was, she was like, she thought that that was like fucking gold plated, no. man. No, I think it's just an email. And if it doesn't come <laughs> yeah. out, they'll just say what they say to everyone. Oh, like we had some technical difficulties or we had an anomaly that we Sorry, had to Sorry, that wasn't possible this time. Yeah. yeah. Now, if she really, really yelled and screamed and cried about it, they probably would make an exception for her because she has it in writing. Yeah. But I mean, it's just like, just because they said that that was going to be the case in one email, who knows whether that person actually knew what they were talking about or had authority to make that promise to you. Um, (laughs) It's anyway, if that is the case, if those scores actually do come back on the 28th or 29th, that would be fantastic. Um, Normally it's three weeks though, which is 21 days, which would put it after the June registration deadline, which wouldn't be surprising at all. Point is, is still five weeks before the June LSAT, which is online. <laughs> God, I mean, it's just like, I know we harp on it every time, but it just doesn't make any sense. It's six weeks before, not five six weeks. weeks. And oh. yeah. And, um, it's just silly that it, it makes no sense, but yeah. The registration deadline for the June LSAT is Friday, uh, June 30th. And you can monitor your practice scores between now and A- then. April 30th. But yeah. Sorry, April 30th for the June uh, LSAT. Uh, it should be like June 1st for the uh, testing week that starts on June 12th. But no, not I only think... is it not in June, it's also not in May. It's in April. I think it should be like, I think it should be like the, the new LSAT demon. You click once and you're registered you click again and you join so (laughs) (laughs) well then if you ever need another career maybe you can go work in software development for oh my god that would be a nightmare yeah um you can email the show anytime help at thinkinglsat.com again uh please leave us a review on itunes if you like the show and uh, let's go ahead and dive into this interview with our a future Army Jag, Henry Karras. Cool. So the reason why this came about is that uh, we got listener emails, um, probably one or two of them asking about the Jag process. And uh, Ben and I don't know anything about. Or Ben, did you pre? You have anything? Know anything about this process? No, I have no. absolutely nothing. I know. I yeah. know that they're on TV sometimes. Um, but <laughs> we have a, a, a real one with us or, uh, soon to be, I guess, a real Jag. This is Henry Karras. You're in DC. How you doing today, Henry? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I'm a selectee for the army Jag Corps. So not Jag yet, but going through the whole uh, process, getting all that medical stuff done. So, um, but more than happy to speak on it. I've externed and interned with the army. So I know, I know a little bit about the process. Wow. Okay. So, um, yeah, I guess like start at the beginning, you're, you were in the army first before you decided to start going the JAG route. Does that make sense or am I wrong? No, no, I'm actually, I, um, I haven't been in the army at all before this. I mean, I've, you know, interned and externed with them, but, okay, um, got it. 
I, I wasn't an active duty. I was a student and um, went to University of Minnesota. The way I learned about it was actually I was kind of trying to figure out what to do after college. Um, and I, I always wanted to join the military. Um, so I was trying to figure out a way after college to do that. And my parents were like, well, what about the JAG Corps? Because you always want to do it at law school. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting path. And I started to look into it. And there's a lot of great opportunities there, especially for young attorneys. Um, you get to do a lot of different areas of the law early on. Um, so that's really what drew me to it originally. So I made really a big plan, um, taking the LSAT. I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. And as I was pushing toward it, I kind of really started to realize, like, yeah, I really do enjoy this as I was doing the internships and the externships. It's a great culture. Um, definitely a lot of support in learning the law, no matter which office you're in. So it's definitely something that I really enjoyed the culture and the people there, too. So, I mean, that definitely was kind of drawn me to it. Your internship, externship is was with JAG? Yes, it was. So I um, so I externed originally um, what's called the U.S. Army Legal Services Agency, which is out at Fort Belvoir in Virginia. And they handle a lot of the specialized law stuff. So they have all the litigation that happens in federal court. So I was in the contract fiscal law division. So we're mostly arguing in front of the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals or um, federal, uh, the Court of Federal Claims, COFSI. Um, so that's a lot of, it's a lot of like government contracts, sort of that kind of stuff there. After that, I was at the litigation division. So that's all like tort law. Um, so that has to do a lot, again, a lot of federal claims courts, but also district courts around the country. So you did these while you were in law school. Sorry, I'm trying to follow the timeline a little bit. It sounds like you knew you wanted to do JAG before you even took the LSAT. You took the LSAT and then you got into law school. You went to GW and then you started doing these internships, externships? Yeah. So the first one I did over the summer after my 1L year. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So that was during, it was, I did that over the summer and then into the fall um, at Contract mm. Fiscal Law Division. So you were, you were doing that while you were a 2L? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And then my second semester of 2L is when I switched over to the litigation division doing the tort stuff. Um, and then yeah. over the summer for my 2L year, I was doing, um, I was up at Fort Drum, which is in upstate New York at, outside Watertown. And that's, I was doing what's called the normal 2L internship. So that's where they rotate you around the general offices you'd be doing during your first um, assignment as a JAG. So that includes uh, military justice, which is kind of the stuff that has to do with um, criminal court. That's like when you're thinking about a few good men, um, that's the kind of stuff you'd be doing in military justice. Then after that, you have uh, legal assistance, which is kind of a lot. It's like essentially what legal assistance is. It's where you're helping soldiers with various things, a lot of will signing, um, a lot of, um, unfortunately, divorce, divorce stuff. You do a lot of landlord tenant, too, which is kind of fun because you definitely like when you're doing the stuff, you learn about stuff that you should avoid when you're, um, you know, you're buying a house or renting. And then administrative law, which is essentially like everything else. You're just kind of telling um, commanders what they can and can't do with certain things. So that could be national security related stuff. Um, you know, hey, can we move this drone somewhere? Or, hey, can we spend this money on um, giving to a local school? So that's, it's a lot of it's different things there. And it's also labor law and government contracts as well in um, administrative law. One thing we haven't done yet is uh, define JAG. What uh, does that acronym stand for? Yeah, so it's Judge Advocate General. Essentially, it's a post that was created actually 
before the U.S. existed as a country by George Washington a couple days after the Continental Army was formed. Hmm. Um, so it's essentially to provide just legal to military justice services to the branch and enforce military discipline. So you're a judge and a general? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, uh, I, I don't really know exactly where the term the judge comes from. I mean, I think ori- originally um, the JAG did provide a lot of legal. So originally the, j- the commander was the judge actually in military trials. That's uh, changed a bit since. They actually have military judges. But originally it was a layperson or a commander who was essentially presenting judgment upon soldiers who were brought before them. Um, so you were actually a big role the ju- of judge advocates. I mean, still now, but even more so earlier, was give a ton of um, legal advice to commanders and how to fairly um, proceed on these trials. So I think that's probably where the judge comes from. Um, I mean, the JAG, the JAG, there's only really one JAG in each service branch, and they are a general. So that, that may be where the general part comes from. Oh, so you have a JAG who's in charge of all the JAG attorneys. Y- yes, sir. So the, yeah. The, yeah, the okay. T-JAG. Is your title actually going to be JAG? So it's technically, for a JAG, it's a judge advocate. Um, so you don't right. actually have the G at the end. It's just judge advocate. You're just working under the JAG. Yeah. yeah. And okay. the judge is meaningless. You're an advocate. I mean, you're a lawyer <laughs> that works in the JAG office. Yes, sir. Yeah, makes sense. Wait, and just to be clear, Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men is a, is a judge advocate. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but I thought I remembered that he was a judge advocate. Right. Cool. cool. Well, there we go. Well, one thing, uh, stepping back, I'm glad that you love it or it sounds like you love it or like it on some level and know that this is what you want to keep doing. But did you do anything like this before you even took the LSAT? I mean, your parents suggested it and you're like, yep, okay, I'm going to go down this route. I mean, Um, yeah. So, I mean, I definitely think, um, I mean, I've always been a huge, huge into military history. Um, as I said, I've always kind of wanted to join the military um, originally, I wasn't able to coming out of um, high school. I wasn't able to do ROTC, so I was trying to figure out a way to kind of get back in to the um, game as um, you know coming out of college. So I thought one of the ways to do that was—I mean, I always wanted to go to law school too. Um, so I was like, okay, so this is you know an intersection of those two kind of desires in my life, hmm. without really, right. I guess, taking a step back really and being like, okay, like I've gone to college now. Um, you know, being able to, I would have to either take a pause on the law career or take a pause on, um, you know, the military if I didn't do, I guess, both. Are those uh, Civil War cannons on your tie? They are, actually. I got this um, I got this tie over at Antietam. Um, so, it's uh, kind of just, because it's nice being in Virginia, you can go and visit all the battlefields. So, I've been kind of doing that while I've been out here at George Washington. And you, But you grew up in Minnesota? Correct. Um, originally from New York, but grew up in Minnesota. How'd you get into the military stuff? Like, it's just, I mean, I, why that route? I mean, I think it's, as I said, um, I've always been a huge history person. Um, I kind of grew up reading um, books on military history. And I think that's just always been a huge part of my life is kind of just learning about that. It's always been extremely fascinating to me. 
Are you folks armed forces? No, not at all. Brothers, sisters? Nope. Uh, last person to serve in the military is probably my grandfather in Korea. So That's not too far removed. Maybe that's where it comes from. Perhaps. Interesting. So you knew you were going to do this before you started at GW? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's part of the reason I chose GW, actually, was because it has a great program for that. Um, the National Security Program is run by a former Army Court of Criminal Appeals judge, uh, Lisa Skank. And she, um, she has a lot of connections and really has made the National Security Program at GW to be kind of focused toward kind of finding a pathway to JAG. So, I mean, definitely the fact that I was able to do all these externships and internships was because of the close connection that GW has. I mean, obviously the location in Washington, D.C. helps um, because you obviously have each of the services have people in Washington, D.C. But, I mean, a big thing is just the fact that, you know, GW really encouraged uh, externships and internships throughout my time in law school. Um, And that really helps, I think, when you're trying to become a JAG is to be able to work and work in the uh, field. Are you going to get to control where you live or are you going to just be like, well, wherever they send me, that's where I'm going? Yeah, that's that's pretty much how it is. Um, You do get to do a listing of your top choices. (laughs) But if they give you the last choice on your list, it could very much happen. Um, But honestly, I'm looking forward to going anywhere. Um, Yeah, yeah, I I did move around a lot as a kid. So um, honestly, in most most of the military bases won't bring me back um, to Minnesota, and I'm fine with that. Um, I'm fine to yeah. just kind of explore the country. Well, I mean, it, depending on the climate for legal hiring, new law grads really need to be pretty geographically flexible in order to get a job anyway. So, you know, it's just like you kind of know in advance that they can send you anywhere and you can kind of give them some preferences, but you're just going to have to go. But like, I guess, you know that you have a job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. At this point, I've been selected. Um, I mean, obviously, if I don't pass the medical stuff, then then I won't. I also have to go through um, basic training next January. Wow. So they really expect you to be part and parcel with the uh, military in the same, even though your work is going to be predominantly um, intellectual, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mostly it is going to be... Um, you know, legal stuff, being a lawyer. Um, but the motto of the Army JAG Corps is uh, soldier first, lawyer always. So, I mean, under that, you really are a soldier first. Um, and you have, you're expected to do all the stuff that a soldier is. Well, they could actually send you to war, right? If the if the shit totally hit the fan and they just, like, really needed bodies. I mean, you, in basic, they're going to, like, give you a rifle, right? Right. So, I mean, JAGs are required to carry um, when they're deployed. Um, and you do carry a rifle when you're outside, um, kind of outside the base. I mean, generally, you're obviously not going to be um, a frontline officer in the Army, the Navy, or the Air Force. But actually, in the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard, you are a line officer. Um, so the Marines, actually, you could be um, on one tour. You could be a legal officer. Um, they actually don't, I think, have judge advocates in the Marine Corps. It's actually just called legal officer. And then the next th- time you could be leading an infantry platoon, the Marines. So it's a, it's a much different process there. And Coast Guard's the same way. Um, you could be, you know, a Coast Guard judge advocate. And then you could be captain of a ship the next uh, tour. Is wow. that why you chose Army? Uh, it is in part. Um, I, I really like the Army culture of um, definitely they have that kind of focus on where you're um, able to do a lot of different areas of the law. I mean, obviously, Army is the biggest branch. 
and they allow their judge advocates to do a lot of specialized areas of the law. I, I know that Navy doesn't allow their people in uniform to do like labor law and government contract stuff. That's usually they have civilian lawyers to do that. Um, and they just don't really have any of those specialized areas of law for people in uniform. So which branches are more competitive? How does that work? And if someone wants to go into the JAG uh, core, how do they, I mean, what what are their chances of success? Yeah. And related, when did you know that you had the job locked in? All right. So I'll, I'll answer your question first, Mace, because it's a pretty easy answer. Um, okay. So I learned in... Um, kind of November of my 3L year. For the Army, um, theirs is a 3L process, so you apply around August of uh, 3L year, and then you kind of learn about late October, early November. Were you also, like, trying other paths at the same time? I mean, did you, like, go do OCI for the big law firms, or...? I didn't. I, I don't know if I would advise people to exactly do what I did, where I pretty much put all my chips on um, the JAG Corps. I mean, it worked out for me. Um, and I think, I mean, I think I did learn a lot um, by doing a lot of different externships. But I, I didn't really do OCI or do any other different jobs. I mean, I think my backup plan was because I've been concentrating in government contracts during my time at GW, was I would go into something with government contracts um, if JAG didn't work out, but, um, yeah, I didn't really have too much of a backup plan, uh, which is, sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you were confident. So what signs did you have? Did you, did you get any indication from like your internships that, Hey, like, yeah, we're, we're interested in. Yeah, definitely. You know, I've been spending a lot of time there and I think, I mean, obviously they can't like guarantee you anything, but I think, being there, kind of making a lot of connections during my externships definitely helped me feel like, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who want me to be in the JAG Corps. Um, so I feel like this is probably going to happen. It's kind of answering your question earlier, Ben, because I know you were asking about the process. Um, it's yeah. a little different for each branch. Um, so as I said, Army is a 3L. That's when you're kind of trying to figure out stuff is in your 3L year. when you're If you're going to get in, that's when the selection board is. Um, Navy yeah. and Air Force actually have two L boards because um, they actually have uh, paid internships. Army does two now, so the process may change a bit in the upcoming years. As right now, Army's still 3L. But Air Force and Navy both have two L internships. Um, so that kind of allows them to kind of look at people and see if they can assess on tech duty. So there's people at my law school right now who found out um, their 2L year, like, hey, I have a job now after law school. Um, so definitely that's probably a very nice thing to have when December, yeah. January of your 2L year. You graduated last year? No, I'm, I'm actually a 3L this year. You're a 3L now. Okay, I see. Like a month left of school. Congratulations. Uh, is it true that they scare you to death your first year, they work you to death your second year, and they bore you to death your third year? I think it's partly true, though, to be honest, this year I feel like I've been worked to death again. So I think I uh, got kind of the bum <laughs> yeah. deal there. I think that's actually the truth for people who are going to turn into real lawyers is that they they work their ass off all three years. It's just the profession, right? Yeah. That's what you're getting into. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the nice thing about 3L years, though, you can do kind of things outside of law school, too. Like, I've been doing legal volunteering at Fort Myer, which is attached to Arlington Cemetery. So I kind of do that on the side, too, in addition to law school. 
anyway, that's you know, it's another thing that kind of takes up time, but it's definitely something that I enjoy. And it is kind of nice to do your 3L year to kind of break up classes. Everything's been online now for a full year? Yeah, GW's been online all year. So um, Yeah. I mean, like, since it, it happened in the second semester of your 2L year, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, if you think about it, except for, like, a couple months of second semester of 2L, it's almost been half the time online. But um, How, How's your adjustment process there? I mean, I think the first month, like everyone else, it was it was a little difficult. But I mean, honestly, I think at this point, you've just kind of reworked your schedule, figured out different ways of learning. You got to like be used to like kind of spending a lot of time in your apartment doing stuff. Um, but I mean, you can work around it. And I think it- it's kind of easier in a way, isn't it? I mean, you don't necessarily have to put pants on. So <laughs> that's true. Um but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it is easier to schedule. Um, and, I mean, I actually, weirdly enough, I miss the commute. Um, I miss kind of using the metro to go into the city. Oh, where did, where did you live? Or where do you live right now? So I live in uh, Arlington, so right next to Pentagon yeah, yeah. City. Um, yeah. So, nice. yeah, yeah. Are you in Roslyn? Just, that's where I was when I was at GW. I was in Roslyn just up the hill right after you get out of D.C. So... Yeah, no, I'm I'm at the Pentagon, um, so right across from Pentagon City, uh, okay. um, those high yeah. rises. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, well, the blue line's down now, but um, so I guess I wouldn't be metro again. But um, does GW have a mascot? Yeah, the Colonial. Uh, it's yeah. like the Colonial. It's a little militia dude. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. You guys are fellow Colonials. Yeah. Go Colonials. Does GW have like sports and stuff? Not, not really. Um, I think like their bigger sports are like rowing. Um, they have a pretty big, ba- good basketball program, I believe. Yeah. Do they ever make the tournament? Uh, honestly, I'm not a huge basketball fan. More of a hockey <laughs> they fan. Coming from Minnesota, you guys would so. know if they made the tournament. Yeah. Even though you're not big basketball fans, if that was your school and the school was ever making it into the Final Four or whatever, you would definitely recognize. You would. You guys would know. Really quick, I want to go back to this whole. You know, in-person learning thing. I mean, or, you know, virtual learning. This might be all over by fall, but I'm curious. So you're sitting there in a class. They're using Zoom or what? Were they using something like that? Yeah, mostly Zoom. I mean, some people use like different programs, but it's mostly Zoom. Oh, yeah. So it's different from teacher to teacher, but they get their little app and do they do cold calling? They say, hey. So most of my professors don't. Um I've had one class, and this could be partly because I'm a 3L. Um, they don't really cold call us. Um, okay. But I know the 1Ls are still getting cold called. Um, and they still okay. prep to be cold called. So Yeah. The classes are still engaging, I guess. And Yeah, I mean, you know, some of them have, I think, kind of changed the curriculum a little bit. Like, I think they've added more, like, projects and sort of, like, practical learning to the courses. Um, so like they're like having you do more writing and stuff, um, which isn't bad. Cause I mean, you know, obviously you're going to have to be filing like briefs and stuff in, you know, in real practice. I do think writing is an undertrained skill in law school. It's farmed out to three L's to teach one L's, which doesn't make any sense to me since that's like a core of your profession. But, um, well, they, okay. it, 
this is kind of like continuing fallout from the financial crisis in 2008 and the like terrible job market for lawyers in 2009, 2010, and people just going straight into legal practice with no idea how to practice law. I mean, they, they just really need to make changes to law school curriculums generally. The, the whole, I mean, what, what do you do your 1L year? Like you get, you get cold called on some arcane like Blackstone or some shit that's just clearly not the law now. And what are you, what that's, it's just purely an academic competition and not, it has, it's totally removed from legal practice. You still had some elements of that. It sounds like though, in your 1L year. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would definitely say 1L was probably my least favorite year. Um, just cause you just, I mean, like you said, it's essentially just, you're just essentially running at each other, it seems, and trying to get the best grade um, on, you know, a lot of subject areas that they almost like, I don't seem to try to make uninteresting at times, I feel. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it, I think it does work toward though something. I mean, I definitely think like torts and, you know, my contract law classes um, and especially Civ Pro. Like, you start to see, like, okay, these are really important when you, like, actually start to use the skills. And I'll say, I think once you start to use those skills from 1L classes in practice during that, like, um, internship during your 2L years, when you actually start to understand how it works better than when you're just reading cases, um, and you're like, oh, okay, like, this kind of makes sense. But I think when you start using it in practice and seeing how case law works, I think that kind of is better. I'd love for them to flip it around. Just like say, hey, let's do some actual shit and then let me, to the extent they even need to talk about case law, I don't know. But at, at least at that point, you'd kind of appreciate where they're coming from. It's just putting the theory before the practice. Yeah, like you take an entire class of contracts and you never look at one contract the entire time. I mean, luckily, my professor actually did show us a contract. He's like, I, I feel like I'm going to do you guys a disservice if I don't show, show you a contract at all during 1L year. Uh, who is your contracts professor? Uh, Wilmorth. Oh, okay. Who did cool. you have when you were there? I uh, I feel like I'm forgetting his name, but I feel like it was Schooner. Oh, Schooner. That's yeah, Schooner. I know. Professor uh, Schooner. Yeah, he runs government contracts program. So. Yep. Yeah, he called on me the first day of school. I was the first person to be called on, and then the same thing happened in my next class. I was like, what? I guess Olsen is in the middle of the alphabet, right? So maybe it's just like they're choosing out of the middle of the list, but it happened twice. People thought that was funny because it was like the same cohort people, right? So you're like going with the same group of people from one class to the next. Like that poor soul, he's got it out for him. I did. But, yeah, but um, in the long run, it was much better for you because you, you had that experience on your very first day. My, pro, my first class was Civ yeah. Pro, and we were like in these small classrooms, small groups, and they were calling on each person in my row. And I was like, oh gosh, it's coming to me. Because he called on the person next to me to my left and the girl next to me on my right. And I was like, oh gosh, I'm going to get cold called, and I have no idea what's going to happen. Luckily, though, he went to the person behind me. So I uh, didn't get called to the middle of the semester. Well, Civ, same for me. Civ Pro, I got called first. That was the, 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 the other class. And uh, unfortunately, I had not done the reading. It was just like one a one-page case. <laughs> and it was about taking a, like a second bite at the apple or something. And I, I just, I totally lied. 
I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and then he just grilled me alive. Just like, oh, so what do you think about this, Mr. Olson? What do you think about that, Mr. Olson? I'm like, oh, yeah. It's just like, yeah, I don't think they... Eventually, I was just like, he's like, you didn't read it, did you? Or something. And I was just like, oh, yeah. He's like, let's give someone else a shot. <laughs> I just remember the case don't. that they were calling people on was like from the 1780s. So like I could even hardly understand what they were saying in the case. because Yeah, like it was old an old English. case. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, but... I should have at least read it. I could have had a shot at it. That was my own fault. Anyways. Um, how long are you in for, Henry? Are you locked into this path for the rest of your life, or is there a uh, transition out into like civilian law? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely great options to transfer. Um, for me, it's essentially an eight-year commitment early on, um, but at least for, I mean, for those years, you have to do active duty, so that's full-time military. I believe after that you can do reserves, um, and that's always a great option if you're trying to transfer out or if you go four years and decide, you know, maybe the, J- the JAG Corps isn't really for me. Um, that allows you to do a weekend a month and then one week a year um, of service. Um, so you keep your commission and you get to do milita- – and you still kind of work on the weekends and have like a job with the Army as a reserve officer. But you still actually can deploy – um, as a reserve. But the nice thing is right now you get to kind of choose your deployments. So I've met people who are like, they get to kind of do the interesting assignments, like go to um, the Democratic Republic of the Congo or to like Tanzania, where like, you know, you don't really think the U.S. military has a lot of operations, but, you know, they're kind of the areas on the fringe where, um, you know, you do get to see some interesting places that way because you're getting to choose. But for career options, um, you do have a lot of I think, ability to transfer out, especially because, as I said, those first four years are kind of military justice, administrative law, and legal assistance. So obviously you're going to have a lot of competency, particularly in criminal law, coming out. Um, But I definitely think that you have the ability to transfer into really anything afterwards. I will say that, I mean, if you're like trying to make partner at the same time as someone coming out of law school who um, had started at law firm, you're not going to make partner before that person, obviously, because you just haven't had as much time in at a firm, obviously, as with that person. But um, I think you can definitely transfer out of the JAG Corps once, uh, once you in, you're in. But you might end up with so much better experience than those people who went straight down the associate route, for example, are probably never going to set foot inside of a court for three years of their career and it sounds like you are going to maybe get like actual trial trial experience right off the bat yeah no the trial experience is definitely right off the bat and the nice thing about the jag corps um because i was always a little concerned about that early on it's like how how do they expect you to go right into court um right away but they actually have a lot of great training i think and that's how they do it i think there's a lot of like you know they really they give you a lot to do but they also give you a lot of support in doing that I mean, I couldn't, I, I got to double down on that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, when I was a 3L, I wrote a brief that was submitted to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. That's that's insane. I mean, I, I wrote the brief and the attorney like took it and he's like, okay, great. And it was like, you can't do that at a law firm. They're not going to take that risk. They don't have the, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, definitely, as I said, I think that they do a lot of good training. So actually, after the basic course, you have about, I think it's nine weeks of military law school. For the Army, that's at Charlottesville, Navy Newport, and I think 
Air Force is like in Alabama somewhere. And I mean, you have about nine weeks there where they teach you everything you're going to kind of need to know briefly for your initial job as a judge advocate. Hmm. This would be a rude question normally, but um, I believe it's public information. Uh, what What's it pay compared to like associate salaries at a law firm? Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely probably going to be less than big law. Um, I'd say my friend and I looked it up once, and I think it was about like mid seventy, eighty thousand. So I mean, it's not it's not horrible. Um, and with ben, I mean, that's with benefits and all. Well, yeah, military gets incredible benefits, right? And early retirement and everything else. Can you do the? Is it the same thing, like twenty years and then retirement? It is. Yeah, I mean, that's the program's changed a little bit. Um, they're now doing a different kind of um, retirement system, but it's still the twenty-year requirement. That's amazing. Okay, so seventy-ish, eighty-ish, something like that. That's uh, yeah. That's what. That's more than probably. Well, the average uh, lawyer, starting lawyer, makes a hundred, but there aren't any people who actually make the hundred, right? Everybody makes one sixty, or they make fifty-five. 50, yeah. Yeah. And so you're going to be um, definitely a step above, I would say. So you're definitely going to be more than the median salary for uh, new law grads. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely it's a nice, you know, I'd say it's a nice starting pay. Um, it's it's not big law pay, but I mean, I, I didn't really expect that going in either. So, yeah. Cool. Um, anything else, Ben, for Henry? No. Thanks for coming on. That's awesome. Um, yeah, Henry Karras is a 3L at GW Law and a soon-to-be judge advocate general in the Army. When do you – so you graduate and you just like right away – you said you got that extra like one month of JAG law school. Yeah, so I mean I'll, I'll have to take the bar after, you know, take the bar, get a bar in D.C. Um, I got a couple months after that because you hear back around I think October for the um, – for the DC bar, or maybe it's November. Um, but then January of next year, 2022, um, you know, you, you go to basic and then you go to, um, to the, um, to the, uh, law school, the law course. They don't even send you to basic until you've passed the bar. No, 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 no. Cause they, they want to make sure that everyone kind of is on like a certain timeline. So if like you don't pass the bar, they don't want to send you to basic and then you have to wait and stuff. Right. Oh, and I was going to ask about this uh, physical that you have to pass. Is uh, is it like the a certain mile time and all that stuff? Yeah. So the new, um, the new, um, new physical requirements. Yeah. So now they have a new physical requirement. You have to be able to like deadlift. Um, you have to do these like hand release push ups. Ooh, tell me, tell me. I want to know. I want to know where I'm at. So you have to be able to do for um, deadlifting. You have to be able to do. Um, well, for for Jag, you only have to do like 135, uh, three reps of that. Um, okay. That's the minimum. The maximum is 340. If you do maximum? more than that, you can't be. They're like, no, <laughs> sorry. <You're out. laughs> you need to be on the front lines. <laughs> You're too strong to be a lawyer. We need you carrying stuff. No? No, no, no. They don't kick you out for that. Um, oh. I, it's just extra credit at that point. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So above 135, three, three reps. Got it. And then for, I think, push-ups, it's uh, 10 hand-release push-ups. Okay, so you, you, you clap in between each push-up. That's the Rocky thing? Okay, yeah, I got it. Mm-hmm. 
Wait, ten? he was doing one-handed. You push-ups. only have to do ten. That's not bad. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah, hard. One hand is harder. Yeah, uh, that would be harder. Um, but um, then you have to do a ball throw. I I don't remember the distance on that. Um, it's not okay. too. It's not too difficult. I think. But it's distance. like a fifty-pound ball or something. No, it's only ten pounds. It's actually not too oh. bad. Like a football, you have to throw a perfect spiral. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like you have to like throw it overhead. Um, so okay, it's supposed yeah. to be like yeah, I guess okay, lifting no. someone over a wall for all those times that we're gonna have to do that in uh, the, yep. in Jaguar. Um, okay. You got you still have the two mile run, which is um, I, I think it's like twenty one minutes now though. Um, for like oh, that's, that's the minimum at all. Um, that's okay. Yeah, it's not too bad. And let's see, there's like a leg tuck. I know, you're making me feel good. I feel like I could go join the Jag right now. Keep going. Hey, hey it's always possible. <laughs> And then there's like a leg tuck where it's, it's kind of like a pull up, but you bring your legs up to your knees and mm-hmm. you have to do, you only have to do one of those for the Jag Corps. Actually. One? I know. Oh my God. What's going on? Is, <laughs> is, is our military ready for the. <laughs> it's for the Jag Corps, Ben. It's not the, it's, it's not the Navy SEALs. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the thing right now is it's very easy to pass the ACFT, but um, very difficult to max out because you have to do 20 of those to get the max score. And what's the max score for? That gives you a higher. Rating. It's good, like, if you want to get into, like, obviously, if you want to go and join, like, you know, like, obviously, be the JAG for the Army Rangers or, like, for one of the Special Forces. I mean, they do expect you to kind of keep up your physical fitness to somewhat their level. I mean, obviously, they're not expecting you to be, like, a Delta Force operator, but, um, you know, they expect you to be able to, like, kind of hang with them somewhat on, I think, the physical fitness. Thank you very much, Henry, for coming on the show. Uh, is there any way people can get in touch with you if they want to ask follow-up questions about JAG? You could say no. You could say nope. Oh, absolutely. No, they, they're free to contact me via email. Um, I mean, phone number would be weird because I feel like I don't want a bunch of like just random text. Right. Sure. What about LinkedIn? You on LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn, yeah. All right, we'll share your profile on LinkedIn and uh, your email address as well. Yeah, do you want me to say it right now? or? Sure. Yeah, so it's uh, H. Karras, so Hotel Charlie Alpha Romeo Romeo Alpha like Sierra at, um, at GWU dot, um, law, actually law dot GWU dot EDU. Awesome. Okay, we'll have that on our uh, show notes page. Thanks so much, Henry, for coming on the show. Best of luck with your uh, last year of law school and the DC bar. Are you worried about the DC bar? Um, a little, but you know, I'll, I'll just work hard and try to pass it first time. little healthy respect. Hey, how were your grades, by the way? What is your uh, class rank at, at GDUP? Ooh, I don't actually, I actually don't know that, to be honest, off the top of my head. No? Top half? Bottom half? I think top half. Top half, okay. All right, congratulations. Um, yeah, enjoy it. And uh, thank you again for coming on the show. Of course, thanks yeah. for having me. Okie dokes. Ben, we have an email here with the subject of should full tuition scholarship recipients assume they are the big fish? You want to tackle this one? Yeah, my gut reaction says yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, not like take it for granted. You're still going to have to work your ass off. But yeah, uh, if you're one of, you know, let's say the school gives full rides to 20% of the class. You can assume that you have a higher LSAT GPA combo than 80% of the class. You're certainly starting with some advantage, but all right, why don't you, maybe there's more to it. Sure. What's, What's the email say? Hey guys, 
exclamation point. I know you like to advocate for the benefits of being a big fish in a small pond rather than the opposite. The argument makes sense considering the competitive nature of law school grading and firm hiring. However, I'm interested in hearing your opinions on how networking could factor into this situation. My line of thinking is that being around a bunch of rock stars and forming long-term connections with people who go on to do amazing things is beneficial, even if these rock stars are crushing you under the curve. Not that this is necessarily sufficient to compensate. There is evidence that going to a school on a full tuition scholarship increases one's chances of performing near the top of the class, given the predictive ability of a combined GPA and LSAT score, but these two elements' prediction of performance is actually fairly weak and leaves significant wiggle room for students to underperform and not be the big fish that they thought they would be. Wait, these performance predictions are weak? I I wasn't under that impression. I think that, I mean, they are certainly not like 100%, right? It's not They're not guaranteed. 100%, but I think it's like 75, which is... <laughs> I don't know what it actually is. That's we what can I got from that data. one video. Yeah. We, we Com- can look at the data on it. I mean, it's, it, it is, I, I will say that it's clear, you know, so you can say it's fairly weak and leaves significant wiggle room. Yeah. If you don't do the work and you don't show up and you just totally fuck up your exams for whatever reason, then you're not going to be a big fish anymore. But I, you know, more often than not, I think you are going to kind of finish your scholarship (laughs) ranking is going to be pretty tightly related to your class ranking. Okay. I, I would say that it most most of the time, but I, I, you I could agree. still call that's, that weak. I, I don't understand. I, I wouldn't say that's weak. I'd say it's predictive. So, but it's, it's hey, <laughs> well, we're talking about like necessarily subjective terms here, right? Like, yeah. What what does it mean to be fairly weak? I don't know. Like we're going to argue about that. So, who knows what G really means here? What if I assume I will be at or below the median? as half my class is defined to be. This hypothetical might suggest it's worth paying a bit for the security of a school that places more than 50% of its class in big law and federal clerkships, assuming these are goals, as opposed to going for free to a school that doesn't. I I don't think that the differences in schools are that significant. I don't think we're talking about a a bottom feeder school and a top-ranked school that's going to have that much of an impact. We're talking about a few schools down on the ranking, which exactly. often means absolutely nothing. Exactly. Yeah. You're comparing... You're, it's it's never Hastings versus Stanford. That's not a thing. It's yeah. always... I, you know, I would say Hastings versus Berkeley, but that's also like too huge of a leap. It's not... Mm-hmm. That's never what you're comparing. You're comparing Hastings to UC Davis. And both of those are fine regional schools. They both have some big law placement. And one of the schools is going to give you a scholarship and the other one isn't. And you're an idiot if you don't take the scholarship. And and I mean, look, if you're comparing Hastings to Stanford anyway, that's because <laughs> you probably didn't apply broadly enough. What'd you do? You right. only applied to two schools and now you have a full ride and then you have nothing somewhere else. Right. If you did it correctly... If you were in at Stanford and, you know, you'd have a full ride at Hastings, 
but you'd also have all kinds of intermediate options, including probably Berkeley, you know, where you can now you can start making some re- or and like UCLA, uh, USC, uh, you know, lots of schools that are just outside the top 14 that probably also would give you a full ride if you're capable of getting into the truly elite schools. I, you know, one thing that I just, what if I, how do you feel about this, Ben? What if I assume I will be at or below the median as half of my class is defined to be, what do you, what's your, I have a reaction to that. Well, that's the very assumption that we're making to argue that you should go to the lower rank school, that you're less likely to be in that situation. I mean, that's, it's kind of like undermining the point, I think. It seems way. so fatalistic. Like, I'm just going to go to law school and just plan on being in the bottom half of my class. Yeah. Like, you're... If you're going to be what? at the bottom half of your class for a school that gave you a full ride, well, then you're going to... What, what are you going to do at a higher rank school? Finish at the very bottom of the class, which if we are literally talking about Stanford Law School... It might not you know, matter, but most cases we're not talking about Stanford. Even if no. you're talking about Berkeley, that's a problem. That's a problem to be at the bottom of Berkeley and, I don't know, at the bottom half of some other yeah, school. Yeah, I don't think the outcomes can be very good for the the very bottom, like 10% of the class at Berkeley. Nope. I don't, I don't think that's great. If you're comparing Berkeley to... Hastings, which again, I think there should be other intermediate options if you had applied to a proper like spectrum of schools. But if you are literally comparing the full ride at Hastings to no scholarship at Berkeley, I think you'd be dumb to go in and be like, oh, I'll just go to Berkeley and finish at the bottom of my class and hope that the reputation of Berkeley carries you through. I would much rather have you go excel at Hastings and not pay for law school. And the thing that this email really seems to miss more than anything else is that like half the people who go to law school just don't practice law ever. Either they wash out, you know, they drop out of school, they wash out of school for some reason, they decide to go some other path at some point, they graduate, but they don't practice like me, Mm -hmm. or they fail the bar or they fail to get employment. Yep. And the reason why we constantly yell about don't pay for law school is that we just we each have like hundreds of well-meaning alums of our LSAT programs who have gone to law school, paid for law school, and then decided not to practice or not been able to practice yeah, because of some combination of factors. And if you do that and you have minimal or zero debt, you're not that bad off. If you do that and you have six figures of debt, you've ruined your financial future. That's the bigger risk. It's like G's worried about going to a lower ranked school for free and still not excelling academically and missing out on the networking opportunities, (laughs) but you're going there for free already. Yeah. And if you go to some fancy school and you pay fancy prices, well, that network isn't going to do shit for you. If you fail the bar, And it's not going to do shit for you if you decide you don't want to practice. And it's not going to do shit for you if you finish so, so far down your class 
that you don't even get those OCI interviews or those internships or whatever, there's a gradient here, right? And so he's like, well, but what about schools that send more than half their class to big law? Yeah, okay, but you still have to finish in the top whatever that is. Like if it's 70%, then you do still have to finish in the top 70% of your class. <laughs> there's a whole bottom 30%, which if you're there paying full price, you're more likely to be in that bottom 30%, which won't even get those opportunities. Yeah. I, I want to talk about this networking gradient a little bit. I was just thinking about it. Um, I'd never really thought too much about this, but I suspect that between most schools, the networking benefits of going alongside, you know, with people who are more likely to be successful are, it's just on a continuum, right? So again, it's the same problem. It's like, we're not talking about a big change from one school to the next, except I bet that that networking benefit goes up exponentially at the very last schools, right? Like the killers that end up going to Harvard, Yale, Stanford, yeah, being connected with them seems like if you're going to get a benefit, it's going to be exponentially greater than, say, just a few schools down. But again, I, I don't know if it's worth the risk. Are you going to pay $100,000 for that benefit? Yeah, and, and even... Even then, I mean, are what are there not rock stars at University of Michigan Law School? Yeah, there I mean, that's what I'm wondering. It's like, stars. you know, like the Pareto principle. It's like the 80 20 thing. Yeah, 80 or not, you know, not five, 95, right. or whatever. It's like uh, right. most of the opportunities go to some of these folks that are like yeah. out of this world, like being connected with Obama or something like that, right? Like, oh, sure. If that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Because how many people are like, how many rock stars are you getting out of Harvard versus out of even just like 10, five schools down, you know? Um, you're yeah. getting, for sure, you're you're getting rock stars out of those tops 10 schools, but... <laughs> I just, again, it's not like Stanford has all has all the rock stars and Berkeley has none. Oh, I, I agree. This is not how it works, right? It's not, it's not like <clears throat> Harvard has all the rock stars and Michigan has none, or Yale has all the rock stars and NYU or Columbia has none. That's just not how it works. Oh, I agree, but that's not what I'm arguing. What I'm arguing is what, like, are we talking like five times as many, right? Does it get exponentially greater at the very top? Because, yeah, because of the Pareto principle. In other words, 5% of the folks take 95% of the whatever, those opportunities, those big opportunities. Well, I suppose Supreme Court justices, the answer is mostly yes. Or it has been historically. I'm not saying it's worth it. I'm just curious. It's an interest. It's an angle I hadn't thought about before with the networking. I'm my gut is still like go for free, go to a great school, do awesome, and work on networking. Well, yeah. If if that's the case, it surely only applies at the very, very, very top. Very, which very, means very it top. just doesn't apply to 99% of our listeners. Yep. But that's the definition of the Pareto principle, right? Like even as soon as you slip out of that top, then it's all of a sudden, it's like you're not much different than anybody else. Anyway. Right, right. Thank you, G. It's an interesting idea, but I don't, 
think it's I mean, worth it. You shouldn't assume ever that you're going to be the big fish. You're going to have to work your ass off no matter where you go to school. I can't imagine going to law school and just planning on finishing in the bottom of my class. <laughs> that just seems, I mean, unless you're only there because your folks are rich and they want you to go to law school and you don't care, you don't have anything else going on in your life and you're just like not serious about being a lawyer. But if mm. you're serious about being a lawyer, I think you want to try to win the academic competition, at least finish in the top half of the academic competition at your school. Uh, otherwise, you're you're losing already at the beginning of your legal career. You're just losing cases. Mm-hmm. You know, I that just doesn't seem like something a lawyer would want to do, or at least not a lawyer that I would want to hire. Right? Like I, you know, the. <laughs> I want a lawyer who is obsessed with winning. Like I want a lawyer who is just going to stack the deck in their favor and is going to win. And I just don't think you're doing that. If you're like going to go to a law school for networking purposes and not do well academically. Yeah. Okay. This we have labeled as a, um, surprising email from Georgetown. It's uh, sent in anonymously And uh, I don't think it's all that surprising, to be honest, but it says, Dear Redacted, the Educational Testing Service, ETS, has identified you as a promising candidate for Georgetown University Law Center. On behalf of the admissions committee, I invite you to apply for fall 2021 admission with your GRE score. By the way, this was sent out February 24th of this year, uh, fishing for applications for this fall at Georgetown University Law Center. Okay. Um, Although this invitation does not waive your application fee or guarantee admission, (laughs) we feel that your academic talent and background would make a positive contribution to the intellectual community at the Law Center. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about the Law Center's extensive curriculum, as well as our admissions process, Our application is available online through LSAC, located steps from the U.S. Capitol and Supreme Court. Georgetown University Law Center is one of the most diverse law schools in the nation. We are an educational institution dedicated to the principle that law is but the means, comma, justice is the end. (laughs) With this principle in mind, Georgetown has built an environment conducive to the exchange of practical ideas and the pursuit of academic excellence. What a bunch of bullshit in that paragraph. God damn. If you have questions about the application, please feel free to contact us. I look forward to receiving your application. And this comes from um, Madhavi Menon, a director of JD admissions at Georgetown Law. What's your gut say? Wait, so this person is surprised because... They, they have a GRE score on record. A GRE score? Yeah. They, they, they have a GRE score on record, apparently. And the ETS has Georgetown, you know, has an ETS account or whatever it is. They probably have to pay ETS, I would imagine, to get a li- to get lists of these candidates. And then they send out these. To me, it just seems like a spam. Yeah, I think this listener promising candidates. But wait, I don't understand. Why is this listener a listener? So they just happen to be a GRE 
Oh, there's lots of people like that. I mean, I took the GRE before I went to yeah. law school, right? Just okay. randomly didn't know what I was doing in life and, you know, took I I had previously already had a master's. There's lots of those. We have tons of people I, in well, our class. I'm wondering who if this person masters. has yeah, has like an LSAC account and they're doing just like they're actually it's not even that surprising. They're taking people with LSAC accounts and high GREs and reaching out to them. <laughs> yeah. That would be even less like more targeted, right? And unsurprising. Right. It would be really weird if they were sending this email to every single person who has a GRE score within a certain range. That can't be it. They must yeah. also have noticed that this person has pre-law, whatever. Could be that they, yeah, cross-referenced with LSAC or who knows what. I, I think that this student was like, I mean, I, maybe I'm just purely speculating, but I, I have received emails from students in the past who are like a little bit like, ooh, Georgetown, they're interested in me, you know, but then yeah. like surprised, like, wait, what? They're they're interested in me for this fall? Like, is that, oh, is that real? And I I think the truth is they want as many applications as possible. Absolutely. And the more applications they have, the more fools will pay full price. You know, however yep. many they send out, a certain number are going to say, nope, I want a scholarship. But a certain number will say, whatever you want, I'll pay it to go to your school. And so they just have to increase that number so that they get enough full paying students. Well, they also need to deny uh, a, a as many as they can. Like that's the stupid law school ranking system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's <laughs> one of the metrics is, oh, how many applications did you get and how selective were you from amongst those yeah. applications? And so every person who noticed that, you know, your application fee is not waived. Yeah. So you're going to pay them money. They might deny you. And if they do, it raises the profile of their school. Yeah. Also, if you, you know, because they don't, they're not given scholarships for GRE scores. Yep. It does. That doesn't raise their public profile. So they're not going to give you a scholarship for that. Yeah. So, you know, they might actually, they might also be fishing for like, Oh, this might be like a really high qualified count candidate. And if they're too lazy to pay the, uh, to take the LSAT, you know, we might be able to admit you and you'll be, you'll turn out to be a really good candidate at our, at, do well at our school, but we don't have to get you a scholarship because you didn't take the LSAT, which means you can't get scholarship offers from other schools. So <laughs> it's just, it's, um, I, to me, it just looks like Georgetown out there hustling for applications, basically. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Nothing more to it than that. Uh, thank you, Anonymous, for sending that in. You want to uh, take a look at this excuse of the week? Yeah. Excuse of the week. This is where we uh, evaluate someone's excuse for something related to the LSAT. And yeah, and we're doing this totally anonymously, so I'm sorry if this, is, if this happens to be you. But your teacher identified <laughs> this as an excuse of the week candidate. It was in a logic games class. And one of the students said, this is a head scratcher, I will admit. Okay, so the student said, I use my GPS all the time. So I'm not good at remembering what east and west 
mean? Wow, those are pretty basic uh, directional words. <laughs> I mean, what's the what's the acronym like? Like Santa's, there's like a acronym, right? Santa's I never workshop? learned an acronym. There are four never? fucking points on the compass. We see them all the time on literally every map you look at. I mean, there's maps in books. There's maps in the in-flight magazine. There's maps. It's it's ubiquitous, and it's something that you learn in approximately second grade. I don't know, Ben. You could do a little survey of your kids and see if they could come up with north, south, east, west. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, and, and I'm not, that's where I've heard the acronym. It has to do with Santa. I'll tell you that. It's like <laughs> Santa. Yeah. Great. Um, no whatever or... you, whatever, whatever you need to do to remember what East and West are. I mean, not only that, but this logic game, if you would have put West on the right and East on the left and stayed consistent with it, it wouldn't have you made have any fine. difference. But here's another thing. You can just look at the first question and see what order they ordered it. Like, oh, well, they put east on the well, they put east on the left here, and they put west on the right. Okay, I mean that would be wrong, I would, but I mean if that's what they did, you know, that's what they did. We, we have a very like collegial, supportive environment in all of our classes in the LSAT demon. So it's okay to struggle and it's okay to ask questions and it's okay to ask stupid questions, but for your own progress as an LSAT student and as a law student and as a lawyer, you might want to just think about the excuses that you're making for not understanding shit. Lawyers are people who figure shit out. Lawyers are people who understand stuff. If you got 10 MBAs and one lawyer in the room, the reason why the lawyer is in the room is because they're the one person who's going to really dot all the I's and cross all the T's and really understand everything that's going on. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're going to like struggle on a logic game, that's totally fine. But if you're going to struggle on a logic game because you use your GPS all the time and you're not good at remembering what East and West mean, that is an excuse. It's the excuse of the week. But it's an excuse that is just like you're giving yourself permission to fuck it up. You're giving yourself permission to not understand. That's a lazy excuse for not understanding. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I'm not saying that to beat you up. I'm saying that because you're not going to be successful at this test if you keep making excuses like that. That ain't going to get it done. Think about how that would go if you said that like in law school, <laughs> you know, you've been cold called and there's a hundred other people in the room. Are you really going to say that as to the professor who's asking you about the details of a case or would that fly in court? What's a judge going to say? I'm sorry, your honor. I just, you know, I use my GPS all the time. So I, I have a hard time remembering what East and West mean. But which, which one is it is? <laughs> yeah. The judge is going to say, huh? Uh, they're just, it's like lawyers are serious, aggressive, blunt people. 
mean, what's your client going to say if you're like, oh, yeah, I, oh, sorry. Oh, boy. Yeah, I fucked up your brief. I, I just don't, I forget. I East and West. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember those. Okay, fine. Fucking figure it out then. Use yeah. the Santa acronym or whatever, but like figure it out. Well, you don't even need that. You just need to look at the game. <laughs> you just need to, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a game. You just look at the first question and you say, what'd they do here? Are you kidding me, Ben? A map of the United States? You know what the West Coast and the East Coast are. You've been looking at maps of the United States for your entire life. You know where West yeah. is. You know where East is. Nothing new or different about any of this. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, <laughs> I apologize if this was you, you in one of our classes. And we're doing it all anonymously. So we're not like, you know, <laughs> really shaming anybody publicly. But uh, this, is, um, this is our excuse of the week. And uh, <laughs> I think our main mes- message here is that ask for help by all means. But if you're going to study with us, you're going to you're going to be reaching actual understanding of stuff. And, and very frequently people are just making excuses to give themselves permission for not understanding. And that's, uh, yeah. In other words, you're, you're indirectly asking for help here and we're saying, okay, we're not actually going to answer your question and tell you what East and West is. We're going to tell you to go back and try to figure it out because that's the most help you need. You need to start, solving as many problems as you can. I don't think a judge would even entertain this for five seconds. I mean, maybe some of them would, but I could, if I were a judge, I mean, it'd be like counsel. What? You don't know the difference between East and West. (laughs) Come on. I mean, there would be like just laughter in the courtroom. Yeah. Yeah everybody would be no your your client opposing counsel you're gonna have the court reporter and the bailiff laughing at you it's just it's just i mean i get it people struggle for a million different reasons and part of what they're doing in our classes is you know like asking for support and i mean i'm not I'm not not supporting you. I, I want you to understand this shit. But like, if you're really going to let something like that interfere with <laughs> your ability to solve a logic game, I'm not sure I, I can help you. So we got to, we got to get to a point where we're not going to make those kinds of excuses. We're going to like at least struggle through <laughs> that issue. Uh, there are much more difficult things, to, to worry about than, than something like that. And, uh, anyway, yeah. Excuse of the week. Hey, if you would like to propose, uh, an excuse of the week candidate, something that you've heard from a study buddy or even from yourself, uh, you can email help at thinking and you can get on our, uh, agenda for a future excuse of the week. Same thing. If you have a pearls versus turds candidate or a news item, we're always looking for content for the show. So please email help at thinkinglset.com. Uh, what do you think? Time for this LR question? Yeah, let's do it. Should I do the new demon? Yeah, do it. Okay. This is from... Do I want to start challenge or do I want to view only? Doesn't matter. 
If you start challenge, it won't be in review. If you do view only, it will be in review. Okay. I'm going to do start challenge so that I don't know what the answer is. Okay. You want to read it? Yeah, no problem. This is test 65, section four, question 22. It's a logical reasoning question. It says scientist. So a scientist is speaking. Physicists claim that their system of careful peer-reviewed Peer review prevents scientific fraud in physics effectively. Okay, so this scientist is telling us what some physicists claim. So I'm kind of anticipating this scientist to come back and say that they're wrong, that maybe careful peer review does not prevent scientific fraud, but I don't know yet. Okay. But... There's that but. But biologists claimed the same thing for their field 20 years ago. Mm, Not good. And they turned out to be wrong. Oh, dear God. (laughs) Halfway through this argument, I'm anticipating that they're going to do something really stupid. Mm, What are you anticipating? Well, I'm anticipating that they're going to go along the lines of, well, the biologists made the same claim and they were wrong. Therefore, physicists have to also be wrong. Yeah. And they haven't done that yet. But I have a lot of experience with the LSAT. And on logical reasoning, they they do a lot of really dumb shit. And this just feels like that pattern. It feels like that's what they're going to do. I'm a really good reader and the reason why, or one of the things that really good readers tend to do is predict what they think is going to come next. I'm not sure that this scientist is going to go that way, but I'm attuned to it. I'm, I'm primed for them to make that mistake. Like I'm, I'm about ready to call them on their bullshit before they even got to the bullshit. Yeah. And just to clarify, why would that argument be so bad? I mean, the biologist made that claim 20 years ago and they were wrong. So why doesn't that mean that the physicists are wrong? <laughs> because biologists and physicists could be completely different people and different people are allowed to do different things. Yep. I mean, just because one time, you know, it's it's like saying um, Donald Trump is a reality star who got elected president. Therefore insert any of today's reality stars. Thank God. I don't even know who they are, but you know, insert whoever who is (laughs) hosts a reality show. Therefore Tom Bergeron, he used to be, I don't know. I'm not sure if he's still hosting dancing with the stars, (laughs) but you know, it's like, Oh, so therefore Tom Bergeron has to be the president of the United States. That's a similar argument, right? It's a parallel argument. Yeah, well, they could have had different systems, right? The physicists had careful peer review. Um, Maybe the biologist's careful peer review was conducted differently, and that difference is all that mattered. So All this would flash through my head in one second, by the way. I mean, it's just like, all I'm saying is, please don't do that. I mean... Or please do do that. Because if you do do that, then I already know the answer to whatever question you're going to ask me. Yeah. But they don't have to do that. They could, they could go an entirely different direction. They continue. Since then, 
biologists have greatly enhanced their discipline's safeguards against scientific fraud, thus preventing further major incidents. Uh, okay, I'm glad that they've made those changes. Maybe the physicists have also already made those changes. It would be conducive to progress in physics if physicists were to do the same thing. Uh, it's similar to what I thought they were going to do. It's it's uh, it's an interesting twist. It's this. I would say that this is the conclusion, right? Um, the author is trying to prove that if they if the physicists made the same changes that the biologists made, that would help physics, conducive to progress in physics, would it? Wait, say that one more time. You didn't go where I thought you were going to go. If the physicists were to do the same thing, in other words, if they were to greatly enhance their safeguards against scientific fraud and prevent in incidents that may or may not even exist, would that be conducive to progress? Well, it certainly stands to reason. It, it does not say that in the argument itself. It yeah. assumes that that is true. Yeah. Um, I mean, fraud seems bad. Does seem uh, bad. Preventing major incidents of scientific fraud seems like a conducive to progress in a scientific field. It, you're, it's true that they did not explicitly say that. They left it for the reader to infer that. And that's not good legal writing. Legal writing is technical writing. It's like computer code. You didn't write the line of code that said if you prevent incidents against scientific fraud, then that would be conducive to progress. Another way of getting to that same uh, analysis is to note that conducive to progress is new shit that only came up in the conclusion. Exactly. And that's that's what I'm getting at. It's like, where did this come from, right? I was almost even anticipating a different conclusion. Like, therefore, you know, they they really are. I thought it was that they were wrong. <laughs> Um, cause the biologists were wrong. So I thought this person was going to end up saying that the physicists are wrong, Yeah, but, but they did do the thing that I was really, I was worried about, which was, oh, so anything that applies in physics also has to apply or sorry, anything that applies in biology also has to apply in physics. That's yeah. another thing that they didn't say, by the way. Yeah. yeah. And, um, it turns out to be a strength in question. The conclusion of the scientists argument is most strongly supported if which one of the following is assumed and, I guess we have two, I have two predictions here. Yours was, hey, if you avoid major incidents of scientific fraud, it is conducive to progress. That's an obvious assumption of the argument. It's almost hard to see it because it's so just like common sense that that would be the case. But yep. they didn't say it and they need to put that into their brief. By the way, I um, want to step in here for one second. You said wait, it's common sense. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, mm -hmm. I was just going to say my other prediction is yep. um, mm -hmm. anything that applies to biology applies to physics. So we have yes. two different predictions. But what do you want to say? Those are good. Yeah, I was going to say, although you said it, it's like so obvious that it's common sense, it still wouldn't fall into the category of reasonable assumptions, I think, that the LSAT is looking for. Because at the end of the day, we don't really have any clue, right? For all we know major fraud actually propels the discipline forward dramatically because as it gets exposed, you know, it generates all this interest and attention. I mean, could we just, be, could be we the have case, no yeah. idea, right? 
Like, well, if you don't make it explicit, mm-hmm. then there's room for people to argue. Yep. You know, and you just don't want to leave room for argument. You want to just suck all the oxygen out of your opponent's case by making every single thing totally explicit to where in, in a, in a perfect world, you win on just like summary judgment because it's just all there on the paperwork and the judge looks at it and goes, yep, this is legit. Sorry. We're not, (laughs) there's nothing for us to argue about. So we're not going to court. Yeah. Um, so yeah, making, making even obvious things explicit makes an argument better. Yeah. All right. So it's asking us which one would strengthen the argument or support the argument the most, if it were true. A says major incidents of scientific fraud in a scientific discipline are deleterious to progress in that discipline. Mm. (laughs) Okay. Deleterious is the word we talked about the other day on the show. It means harmful not good. Yeah. So if those things hurt progress, then getting rid of them would presumably be conducive to progress. Yeah. And that word is intimidating to people and they're not going to like that answer choice if they're not that familiar with deleterious. Mm -hmm. But I mean, look, it's the word delete. It's the actual entire word delete Mm -hmm. followed by R I O U S, which I O U S is a very common suffix on a word, you know, which just means what of that nature. Mm-hmm. So deleterious is of the nature of deleting. That's probably mm-hmm. like the exact definition of the word. And it's, yeah. that's, I, I understand that you've maybe not seen that word before. Although if you read more books, you would have seen that word before. But even if you haven't ever seen that word before, mm-hmm. you got to kind of grind it out. I mean, it, you've got a delete key on the keyboard in front of you, I guarantee. Yep. So it, you should, I don't know, it's, you got to hang in there and figure, what, figure out what that word means. So that's going to turn out to be the answer. Yep. Now, if you don't like it because you don't know what that word means, that's okay. Because you can still eliminate the four wrong answers. Yeah. So B says, very few incidents of even minor scientific fraud have occurred in biology over the last 20 years. Okay. Um, I guess this is like trying to strengthen a premise almost. (laughs) Yeah. And it it just doesn't do shit because we already have admitted into evidence Mm -hmm. that since biologists made this change, They have greatly enhanced their discipline safeguards against scientific fraud, thus preventing further major incidents. There have been, there, there used to be major incidents and now there have been no major incidents. And now this is saying there's not very many minor ones, but who cares? (laughs) Right. Yeah. We already know that they have figured out a way to prevent major incidents of scientific fraud. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's been about. Yeah. So, so B's like, oh, and, and they, there's even hardly been any minor fraud. Yeah. Yeah. I, whatever. We, we know that the biologists did well. Yeah. Strengthening that premise doesn't, it's a, it's a weak strengthener of a premise and premises don't even need to be strengthened. We have to accept them as fact to begin with. Yeah. 
Okay. Answer C. No system of careful peer review is completely effective in preventing scientific fraud in any scientific discipline. Okay. Well, that means no one's perfect. If anything, if anything, that just hurts the argument. Like, oh, that, you're, you're no, never going to get it. it. It definitely hurts the argument. I mean, your opponent gets a copy of your brief. Mm-hmm. If you put that in your brief, your opponent is going to try to use it. You know, it's like, hey, even the sci- Mr. Scientist who's trying to prove that, you know, physicists will benefit their, it'll be conducive to progress in physics, but even they acknowledge that no system of careful peer review is completely effective in preventing scientific fraud in any scientific discipline. Mm-hmm. So you don't get to make the conclusion that this is going to be conducive, conducive to progress in physics. Yeah. You've acknowledged in your own brief that this plan might not work, which means you don't get to reach the conclusion that you're trying to reach. Yeah. This is, it, I, to me, it's, you know, it's not a devastating weakener because it's only a possibility. Mm-hmm. But would you put that into the brief? Absolutely not. You're giving your opponent ammunition. Yeah. Okay. So B's out, C's out. Answer D says, 20 years ago, the system of peer review in biology was less effective in preventing scientific fraud than the system of peer review in physics is today. Uh, okay. So what physics are we is comparing? Actually, <laughs> yeah. But this is actually saying that physics today is better than biology was 20 years ago so maybe physics doesn't need to change as much it's another weakener it's another weakener it's like so the objection is well but actually physics is starting in a much better place than biology was yeah so yeah they made this change and yeah it helped them a lot to avoid scientific fraud but is it going to help us? <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have to help us because we're in we're better situated. Yeah. So again, another weakener. Okay. E. Over the years, there have been relatively few, if any, major incidents of scientific fraud in physics. Wow. Okay, that's another weakener. Um, yeah. E says, "Why do we need to do this? We don't really have major fraud in our field." Yeah. So C, D, and E are all weakeners. Can't pick any of those. B strengthens a premise, which I guess if you missed this question, that's probably what you picked. But we accept the premises as fact. We don't we don't need to pile on here with additional evidence. We already know that major fraud has been prevented. So minor fraud (laughs) and B acknowledges that some minor fraud has occurred. And to that extent, it could be used as a weakener. So it's you know, we got three clear weakeners, one that strengthens a premise in a weak way or maybe you know could be used as a weakener and we go back to a and we see that it bridges the gap between the evidence and the conclusion you know this is a level five question Mm. i think people are getting thrown off by that deleterious and probably sucked into b i mean if they're if they're missing it they got to be missing it because of b yeah I just, how do you choose? You can't choose a weakener, y'all, for a strengthen question. Yeah. C, D, and E are all going to weaken your case. You, you can't pick those. Um, B, yeah, you're supporting your you're supporting your evidence, but the thing you missed 
And if you just would have been critical of the argument itself, right? If you just cover up the question and cover up the answer choices, if you just spent more time with that scientist's argument, you'd realize that the main conclusion of the argument includes conducive to progress. Progress had never been mentioned in the three premises. Yeah. Conducive to progress is a new element that came up only in the conclusion of the argument. And the reason why the answer is a, is that it connects the evidence that we have, which is about preventing major incidents of scientific fraud. It connects that to the conclusion that we're trying to make, which is about being con- conducive to progress. Uh, deleterious to progress is the opposite of conducive to progress. And so A connects the dots there and says, yeah, yeah, if you've got major incidents of fraud, that's bad for progress, which then makes it all make more sense that if you avoid these incidents of fraud, um, you will enhance progress. Amen. Amen. Um, hey, I wait, guess. So, yeah. Well, one thing on this, I, I went to the review page and uh, this one has three videos and a written explanation. It'll now have four from this podcast. But <laughs> yeah. um, most of our videos have been made in the last couple of years, right? That's when it's like really full steam ahead, making videos for all these 9,000 questions out there. But this one has two videos from 2015, one from me and one from you. So this is a oh, treat. So if you, you want to see a blast from the past, go to this younger question. Younger versions of Nathan and Ben. Wow, seven years yeah. ago now. Yeah, you um, look pretty good here, Nathan. I'm just sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you have to look at me today. Um, yeah, we will continue to evolve all of those explanations. Uh, Demon 2.0 also has the voting feature. So yes. it'll be really interesting to see whether today's explanation uh, with Ben and I both doing the explanation on the podcast, uh, that video goes into the demon and then people get to vote on which uh, explanations they think are the most useful. Um. Cool. Excited about that. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess that's it for the scheduled content for today. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at thinking LSAT at LSAT demon everywhere on social media. Please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have two minutes to do that really helps other people find us. Uh, thank you very much in advance for just jotting down a, a note or two about what you like about the show. We are help at thinking If you want to ask us any questions or get us on the, uh, get any items onto our agenda. We love getting news pearls versus turds things, um, excuses of the week, just any questions about anything at all help at thinking If you want to learn more about the LSAT demon, that is help at lsatdemon.com. Please do the free version of LSAT Demon. We're giving away more and more stuff to our free subscribers. So lsatdemon.com, put in your email address, sign up for an account. I, like this week, for example, today, actually, as we record this, if you have a free Demon account, you're invited to a study group on Zoom with me for the April LSAT. Uh, that's been happening every Thursday on Zoom but you do have to have a free demon account and register for the event if you would like to participate. And I hope you will. Yeah. That was episode 287 of the thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you don't pay for law school.